Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Dixie State University and the film series Doc Utah at the Electric are presenting a film uh, in St. George, which strikes a significant chord in the history of the desert southwest. The film is The Day After Trinity, J. Robert Oppenheimer and the Atomic Bomb. It's a journey through the dawn of the nuclear age, a history of humanity's most dubious achievement, and the man behind it, J. Robert Oppenheimer, principal architect of the atomic bomb. Uh, that film is at the Historic Electric Theater in St. George tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock. It will be hosted by the director, John Else, and uh, presented where, in the general area, where the nuclear age began. The very first civilians, American citizens, were unknowingly exposed to the uh, fallout uh, downwind. Uh, so we're bringing on the director for the hour, John Else, and later in the hour we'll be uh, talking with uh, downwinder Michelle Thomas. John Else, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. It's great to be with you. Appreciate you taking the time to uh, to be with us. A very interesting, impactful uh, film. It'll be, a, uh, I'm sure, a good discussion there uh, uh, tomorrow. Uh, first of all, why uh, why did you want to treat this subject? Well, I um, I'm of the age where uh, I grew up uh, during the Cold War. I was a, a, a young kid in elementary school. Um, you know, doing the the duck and t- duck and cover drills. Um, I actually, I grew up in Sacramento, California, which is several hundred miles north of the Nevada test site. Um, and I actually saw uh, the glow from a bomb one morning. My father was a fellow who was very conscious of the world around him. And in those days, they would announce the tests uh, beforehand, at least in our local paper in Sacramento. And one morning, he got me up at about 6 in the morning and took me out in the backyard, and we looked toward the south and there was this glow suddenly in the sky. I'm sure this is, uh, you know, many of your listeners, or if not most of your listeners in St. George will remember this same phenomenon vividly for much closer range. But I, I vividly remember, um, even as a young kid, thinking, well, the sun is coming up in the wrong direction. Uh, and that stuck with me. So years later, uh, after I had uh, become a filmmaker, I'd become very interested in revisiting that experience, and I I became interested in this fellow Robert Oppenheimer, this very, very uh, cultured, intellectual uh, man who studied poetry, who studied history, uh, an extraordinary physicist, um, who became the principal architect of uh, of the most savage weapon in history, and that that contradiction, that um, uh, you know, sort of boiling set of circumstances that brought Oppenheimer and other people like him to Los Alamos during the war, that was something I I, I wanted to explore. So I set off in um, gee 1978 uh, and began tracking down as many physicists, uh, scientists as I could, folks who had worked on the bomb, um, and we made the film. And you got interviews with, with many of the people who were there at Los Alamos, so you have archival footage of Robert Oppenheimer himself, very interesting in it, and, and you center in on Oppenheimer and uh, the, the moral questions, it's, it makes for a very interesting discussion. At the beginning of the film, uh, one of those scientists said, you may wonder why uh, humane men would work on weapons of mass destruction. That's a, that's a key question. That is the key question, um, and that was the key question for me because I mean I grew up uh, understanding that the world would almost certainly be a better place without nuclear weapons. 
Um, and it was just, it was a conundrum for me. It was a, a puzzle for me how these, these extraordinarily cultured men, with, clearly with humanist values, uh, could go to the, this mountaintop, this magic mountain, uh, Los Alamos, and devote, um, you know, a couple of years of their lives to making this ghastly device. And as I, as I worked on the film, as I met these, these men and a few women, uh, I, I realized that, that given the circumstances, given a war in the early 1940s against fascism, uh, against uh, I mean, a really virulent strain of political regime, uh, you know, unique in in, in in world history. Given that circumstance, I myself certainly would have gotten on a train to Los Alamos and joined Common Cause to defeat Hitler. Um, and that was the revelation to me. <laughs> I'm still mm. trying to to sort it out. Now, the story becomes more complicated as World War II progresses, of course, and after the defeat of Germany um, and the questions about Japanese uh, surrender. And then it becomes even more complicated after the end of World War II when those scientists were faced with the decision of continuing, whether or not to continue working um, on even larger weapons uh, as the Cold War unfolded. And, of course, that was the period... Uh, during which St. George uh, took took really the brunt of uh, the downwind consequences of testing at the Nevada test site. We have uh, three clips from the film. Let's, let's hear the first one here. This this is uh, this is a perfect segue to what you just said. These series of decisions from the scientist's point of view. Okay, we want to defeat Hitler. Okay, now that Hitler's defeated, and that's where we pick this up, the scientists sure. discussing why they kept on building the bomb even after victory in, in Germany. Let's hear this. I organized a, 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 a small meeting at our building. I think the title was The Impact of the Gadget on Civilization. Hoppe uh, tried to persuade me not to have it. I don't know quite why, but... He certainly did try to dis dissuade me. On the other hand, uh, I went ahead and did hold the meeting, and perhaps between 30 and 50 people came. Oppie came, too, which uh, added a certain, uh, always added a tone to any meeting. Uh, we did discuss whether we should go on or not, and in the context of what was happening in the world. Of course, it was called in the context that perhaps what we we were doing was morally wrong. Particularly, Oppie pointed out that uh, but it would be well that the world knew about the possibility of an atomic bomb rather than it be something that would be kept secret while the uh, United Nations was being formed. On that basis, on that logical basis, we all decided that that was right and that we ought to go back in the laboratory and work as hard as we could to demonstrate a nuclear uh, weapon uh, before the uh, uh, so that the United Nations would be set up in the awareness of this horrible thing to come. The Faustian bargain is when you sell your soul to the devil in exchange for knowledge and power. And that, of course, in a way, is what Oppenheimer did, there's no doubt. He made this alliance with the United States Army in the person of General Groves 
who gave him undreamed of resources, huge armies of people and as much money as he could possibly spend in order to do physics on the grand scale in order to create this marvelous weapon. And it was a Faustian bargain, if ever there was one. And of course we are still living with it ever since. When once you sell your soul to the devil, then there's no going back on it. That's a, a clip passage from the film, The Day After Trinity, J. Robert Oppenheimer and the Atomic Bomb. The director is John Ellis. We have him for the hour. Later in this hour, we're going to bring on uh, downwinder uh, Michelle Thomas. Um, and uh, this film, The Day After Trinity, will be uh, screened uh, 7 p.m. at the Electric Theater in St. George tomorrow evening, uh, 7 p.m. Uh, so, John Ellis, uh, that's, it, it strikes me that it's, you know, it's, I'm sure there is patriotism, right? These scientists, we're, we're going to defeat Hitler, we're, 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 you know, doing our patriotic duty, but they want to control it, they, and, and they find out in the end they can't, they can't well, control this. Yeah, I mean, the fellow, the first fellow who spoke was uh, uh, Robert Wilson, who was a, a key player in the development of the bomb and later became a key player um, in efforts uh, to control nuclear weapons. The second scientist you heard, the fellow with the British accent, uh, was Freeman Dyson, um, who did not work on the bomb but, but was involved uh, in uh, nuclear projects uh, after the war. Uh, yeah, they were, uh, you know, they were between a rock uh, and a hard place. I, I think it's, it's. Uh, I absolutely agree with with Wilson that once work began on that bomb and it was clear that it was possible to build uh, a nuclear weapon, uh, that the world did need to know. Um, uh, now it was a different question when it came to the question of use of the bomb later on. Um, the, uh, the Faustian bargain, I'm not sure that I completely uh, buy the Faustian bargain um, uh, argument that Freeman Dyson makes. Um, I, I think that for those of us who were not faced with that particular dilemma of being in a war, which we were losing, by the way, at that time, a war with Japan and Germany, uh, in which it seemed that the, I mean, the very future of civilization uh, hung in the balance. Uh, I think it's difficult to make the charge, uh, an unalloyed charge, <laughs> of, of a Faustian bargain. Mm. So, I mean, to their credit, they did, you know, they did make sure that the world knew. Now, there were arguments uh, about how exactly the world should know. There was a proposal to uh, drop one bomb in Tokyo Bay as a demonstration uh, to the Japanese. There was another proposal to invite Japanese uh, advisors to the American desert <clears throat> um, to the Trinity test uh, and let them see it. But as we all, all know, uh, a different uh, plan was followed, and the bomb, in fact, was dropped on Hiroshima, and mm. the second bomb was dropped on Nagasaki. Mm. And the third was in the works, by the way. We just had an anniversary. Uh, President Obama went, uh, was in uh, Hiroshima. Uh, let's, yeah. hear, let's hear another clip. This is uh, Oppenheimer's yeah. reaction to the bomb's use in, in uh, Hiroshima. What was, what was Robert's reaction to the news from Hiroshima? I, th I don't know. I, th uh, I, I can't imagine that it was very different. A, a, a feeling that, uh, an initial feeling that, thank God it wasn't a dud, 
and an almost immediate horror of what had really happened. It did bring home to one how powerful this is. They treated humans as matter. Hiroshima, August 6, 1945. The first uranium bomb exploded with a light so bright it could have been seen from another planet. More than 100,000 killed, 40,000 injured, 20,000 missing. Burns, blindness, radiation sickness. It took only nine seconds. Today, even now, the victims still suffer and die. Three days later, a second bomb, a plutonium bomb, dropped on Nagasaki. 80,000 dead. That is the uh, clip from the film The Day After Trinity, J. Robert Oppenheimer and the Atomic Bomb. We have the uh, director of the film, John Els, uh, with us. Uh, what did the, in that scientific community, what... What did they think, specifically Oppenheimer, about the use of those those bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Well, the scientific community was divided, uh, as was the, the the political community and the policymaking community. There were those who felt that the loss of life would have been vastly greater had the United States uh, had to uh, invade the Japanese homeland. Um, and then there were those... Um, who felt uh, that Japan was perhaps close to surrender uh, and that the use of the bomb was perhaps not necessary uh, and that they felt that once that genie had been let out of the bottle, uh, it could never get put back again. I mean, I frankly, when I was making the film, I felt sure that someone would use a nuclear weapon again sometime in my lifetime. <laughs> now, I'm still alive, and uh, I'm frankly... You know, I, I'm astonished and quite hopeful that so far we've managed to make it now, what is it, you know, 50-some years out from Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and no one has used one of these uh, weapons. The scientific community was, I think there were many in the scientific community who were, who were quite angered when uh, later, I believe in 1948, uh, Oppenheimer uh, said in a speech uh, that the physicists have known sin, um, and I, you know, there were many who felt, look, we were doing a job to win this war. We were no different from, uh, you know, a Marine Corps grunt who was in, you know, fighting in Iwo Jima. We were no different from someone flying bombing missions over Tokyo or over Dresden. Uh, so what's with the sin, uh, business? Uh, I think Oppenheimer had a, 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 a philosophical, uh, way of, of looking at the grand sweep of history. Uh, he certainly understood the grand sweep of history. Um, he never, during his lifetime, he, he never said that dropping the bomb, building the bomb or dropping the bomb was the wrong thing to do. Um, hmm. He never said, I would not do that again. Um, uh, so, and he went to his grave uh, with that, with, with holding holding fast to that opinion. I'm wondering... No, let me just make yeah. one other comment. I, I think the, the clip you just heard, there was a physicist named I.I. I. Robbie uh, who, who 
says that, that the bomb treated people as matter. And I think he goes right to the core of, of any, any, you know, venture into technology that to the scientists, this was a physics problem and it involved neutrons and fast neutrons, slow neutrons, uh, you know, the, the, the centers of, of atoms, uh, implosion. Uh, it in fact was all about matter and, it was all too easy to become consumed with problems of matter and and forget <laughs> that in fact there were humans at the other end of that um, uh-huh. who were reduced to ash. Uh, I mean, it's potentially a problem with any technology, whether you're designing a new cell phone or an electric car or whatever it is. Um, it, I think it's it, it it is perhaps all too easy to submerge yourself entirely in the technical problem before you without looking to taking a longer view of what are the consequences for humanity and for civilization. There's a lot that's surreal when you think about nuclear power. And I was just thinking, uh, on the one hand, uh, you know, to nations at war, and then you transition to the Cold War, it's just, it's a problem of you know you protect your nation and it's uh, mm-hmm. we, we have to have the bomb which to try to prevent Russia from getting it then they get it in 1949 then you know the nuclear club expands um, so that's on the one side on the other side it's it's uh, we now have the capability as humanity to destroy humanity and then we've lived with that for for many years and I, I wonder if we just kind of uh, get tired of thinking about that. Well, I do. I think I think we do grow numb to it. I think we do grow numb. I mean, uh, you know, the uh, humanity has been pretty good in the long run about limiting these weapons. Uh, and you know, the diplomats and the arms control people have been pretty good about trying to to shake our numbness about these weapons but we uh, you know today well when i was growing up in the, the height of the cold war i think the uh, as i recall the united states had about 30,000 weapons at the ready and the soviet arsenal was something like 28,000 so we had tens of thousands many tens of thousands of nuclear weapons uh, ready to go um that through you know, cooler heads have prevailed, and I think we're now down, I don't know the exact number, we're down around something around a thousand or two now. Now, that's still enough to wreck extraordinary havoc on all of civilization worldwide. Um, and uh, that's still not good enough, uh, but it's, you know, it's progress. It's glacial progress, but progress uh, nonetheless. Mm. Oh, one thing, well, several things struck me from, from the film. One was the <laughs> the scientists, before they explode that first atomic bomb in New Mexico, um, they're, they're placing bets. There's a betting pool on, on the tonnage. You know, how big is this going to be? Uh, apparently, Edward Teller had a side bet that it might incinerate New Mexico. And then it even went to so far as uh, one scientist, or, or one scientist says, we don't know, this might explode the atmosphere. Yeah, there were studies um, uh, at the... Well, I mean, you know, dark humor uh, at times of duress, especially in combat, and I think they saw themselves as being in combat. Dark humor in times of duress is nothing new to to humans. I mean, we all do it. We all whistle in the dark. We all... 
uh, you know, engage in dark humor. There, there was, in fact, um, some statistical possibility of uh, setting a chain reaction, I believe, in hydrogen atoms in the, um, in the atmosphere. Now, before the test, they never were able to conclusively prove that it could not happen, but they arrived at such a low statistical probability uh, that they decided to forge ahead with it. Um, those calculations uh, were again carried out uh, in the 1950s when vastly more powerful um, hydrogen thermonuclear weapons were being tested. <laughs> and so far we haven't ignited the atmosphere. Mm. So far we have not set off that atmospheric yeah. chain reaction. But, you know, the evening is young. You never yeah, know. That, that's true. Uh, what struck me was, and I don't know, it... Uh, in a certain real sense, these scientists who knew the most about you know what what should happen, they didn't they didn't for sure know what was going to happen. Is that no, true? Um, they did not. And had they not been uh, in the throes of World War II, it's I don't know whether they would have proceeded with the test. I, you know, I don't know if they would have. Uh, tried to, you know, uh, gather more data um, to do more of what we now call modeling before actually testing it. But the urgency of the time, I think, forced uh, forced their hand. Mm. And, you know, they had, been, they had been devoting their entire personal and professional lives to this for two or three years by that time. I mean, everything for them depended upon success. Mm. Let's hear another uh, the clip, the last of our three clips that we have here. Um, this sure. is 20 years after the the atomic test, and a reporter is is asking uh, Robert Oppenheimer some some questions about the future of nuclear weapons. Uh, Dr. Oppenheimer, could you tell us uh, what your thoughts are about what our atomic policy should be? No, I I, I can't do that. I'm not not close enough to the facts, and I'm not close enough to the to the thoughts of those who are worrying about it. What your thoughts are about the uh, proposal of Senator Robert Kennedy that uh, President Johnson uh, initiate talks with a view to uh, halt the spread of nuclear weapons? It's uh, 20 years too late. It should have been done the day after Trinity. So there's the title of your film. Um, and the, the, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I haven't heard that clip. Um, I haven't heard that clip in a while. And um, what's important to note with that, well, I mean, you could argue that, that the it should have been done the day before Trinity. Um, perhaps. Uh, we'll never know. Um uh, what's interesting about that clip is, I mean, Oppenheimer, you know, says that he's he really can't comment on this. He really, um, when asked by the reporter about proposals for, uh, you know, reducing nuclear weapons, um, the fact is that Oppenheimer by that time had been shut out of all the halls of power uh, in Washington. He had run afoul <clears throat> of the uh, of anti-communism. He had run afoul of McCarthy, Joseph McCarthy. Uh, he had had it been stripped of his security 
uh, clearance uh, because of some uh, not entirely uh, thoughtful things he had done uh, during the war because of suspicions uh, that he might have involved himself with uh, communists. So he really, by that time, he was the man who had, in fact, given this 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 weapon to the United States, uh, was, in fact, now denied all access to not only to nuclear secrets, but really to public discussion uh, of the future of nuclear weapons. And you can see, you know, he feels... Uh, you know, in that clip, he feels to me defeated. He feels like a man who, uh, unlike the the the, the boisterous, uh, you know, ebullient Robert Oppenheimer, forceful Robert Oppenheimer that everyone knew before the war, he feels to me like a like a defeated man who has seen his creation unleashed on the world and now is powerless um, to to really rein it back in. Hmm. Uh, finally, for the for this segment, we're going to, to take a break uh, shortly, and then we'll come back, uh, continue with John Eltz, who is director of the film The Day After Trinity, J. Robert Oppenheimer and the Atomic Bomb. We're going to, we're going to be bringing in Michelle Thomas, uh, prominent downwinder from the uh, St. George uh, area. Uh, final question on, on, on this part of the program. What, in the end, did Robin, uh, Robert Oppenheimer think about his part in in unleashing nuclear weapons uh, on, on the world? Well, I, uh, you know, he, uh, publicly, uh, from everything I could discover, um, uh, he never regretted having worked on the bomb, and he never felt that it was something that he should not or would not or could not have done. Um, I think he deeply questioned uh, the decision to use the bomb, although he spoke seldom about that. I think he he was was very very dismayed uh, that the nuclear enterprise expanded um, after World War II. The number of bombs and the size of bombs um, expanded exponentially. I mean, we were exploding you know multi megaton bombs <clears throat> within a decade after Hiroshima. Um, and he did everything in his power uh, to stop the development of the hydrogen bomb, the hydrogen bomb being the next generation of these uh, weapons uh, after um, the simple atomic bomb. Uh, he tried very hard, and he, and he was defeated in that effort. He was on the advisory committee uh, after the war, <clears throat> deciding whether or not to pursue an aggressive program to build even larger nuclear weapons. And he adamantly and passionately fought against the development of larger weapons. He was not opposed to uh, the United States having an arsenal of small weapons, uh, but what he called the genocidal uh, mega-weapons uh, were something that he, he, he tried to stop, and he, and he could not. Those weapons are with us uh, to this day. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll continue with John Eltz, the director of the film, and we'll bring in Michelle Thomas. The documentary film is The Day After Trinity, J. Robert Oppenheimer and the Atomic Bomb, and it's being presented by Dixie State University and the film series Doc Utah at the Electric. It'll be shown at the Electric Theater in St. George, 7 p.m. tomorrow, and the director, John Eltz, will be hosting that screening. More with John Eltz, and we'll bring on Michelle Thomas following this break. Welcome to Science by the Slice. 
USC researcher Tim Gilbertson says certain fats activate receptors in our bodies that make sweet and salty foods taste better. This may account for our love of potato chips and chocolate. Craving and storing fat was critical for our Paleolithic ancestors' survival, but creates a formidable health challenge in our current era of plentiful food and leisure. Gilbertson says our current obesity epidemic is fueling an increase in such modern-day scourges as diabetes, heart disease, and cancer. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu science. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, does tithing money to your church make you happier? Would I be happier if I had that 10% in my 401k? <sighs> I don't know. You know, my 401k would look a lot better if I had all the 10% that I had given over the years. And what about religion itself? Does that make you happier? That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Join us Thursday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utime. Tom Williams. Dixie State University and the film series Doc Utah at the Electric are presenting uh, the film The Day After Trinity, J. Robert Oppenheimer and the Atomic Bomb, and that'll be at the Electric Theater in uh, St. George tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock. It'll be hosted by the director of the film, John Eltz, who we've been talking to. We continue talking with John Eltz, and we bring in now uh, Utah downwinder uh, Michelle Thomas. Michelle Thomas, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Um, so uh, I wanted to uh, uh, introduce your story through a clip. This is about a three-minute clip from uh, the StoryCorps project. And I believe you sat down with, uh, with Martha Hamm there, and, and she sent us some, some audio from this. Let's hear just a bit of your story, and then we'll get into some of the, the details. Downwinder is an individual who was either born or in their mother's womb or was outside of the womb in school or working as a rancher or farmer in this remote area, which it was in 1951 through 62, and then after that as well, intermittently. How they got the name Downwinder is during the Cold War, the American government was all worked up over the possibility of Khrushchev having nuclear weapons of, we call them mass destruction now, but atomic bombs. So to counter that, they, the government, Atomic Energy Commission, it was called at that time, identified a site in the United States where they would detonate very, very sizable above-ground nuclear bombs, some larger than Nagasaki, Hiroshima, some not as large. But they did this at the Nevada test site, which is just a little over 100 miles from St. George. They told the people of this area and the people near the test site in parts of Nevada, mostly these people were in agriculture, Bunkerville, Mesquite, St. George, of course. Later, when during Clinton's era, some of these documents were declassified that the government had kept secret, and they had St. George circled on these maps of yesteryear and called it Fallout City, knowing that this would 
get heavily radiated, although, uh, quite honestly, it went all across the United States. I go to elementaries and tell the children that when I was their age, they would sound an alarm, and it would be how we tested to see how to get ready for Russian bombs, Russian attacks. Now, I found, I found out since then they did this all over America, too. In any event, we'd rise and get under our desks. I mean, that's so laughable. That would be like the people in the Twin Towers getting under their desks. But we practiced that every day. And then the recess bell would ring, and we would frolic outside in the freshly fallen ash of the bombs that had been the bomb that had been detonated earlier that day it covered everything the swings the merry-go-round we draw our names in the cement in this dust and it was it was counterintuitive but it was just so peculiar that we'd be practicing this but it didn't apply here my mother she didn't have higher education but she had an enormous amount of common sense. She taught me so much about the government, and she would write stories and write letters to all the congressmen, to everyone, to alert them. It, it was a really conflicted situation because you're raised in the 50s in school. It was, you know, America was, we were the white hats in every situation. And and to learn from her when I'd go home, and she would say, the government's killing us, not Russia. So that is a portion from uh, the story core that uh, we hadn't seen George and uh, Michelle Thomas uh, speaking there with their friend uh, Martha Hamm. Uh, so Michelle Thomas, uh, you, you gave an interview to uh, St. George News. This is a striking uh, quote. You said, my DNA and my life were rewritten the day my pregnant mother was exposed to those radioactive isotopes. You've been affected by this all your life. Yes, I have been affected by this all my life, from the time I was in my mother's womb. Uh, some of the dirty, well, they're all dirty, but dirty, hairy. Some of the dirtiest bombs were detonated and, and loomed up from the earth. And, and uh, uh, you know, if you're a woman and you have a dental uh, uh, x-ray, they will put a, uh, and that's, and I have a doctor right now that wants to x-ray my leg, and he says, Gosh, I hate to expose you to any more radiation. And I'm like, you can't even know the levels mm. of radiation I've been exposed to um, that are uh, so egregious that uh, I'm, uh, I, I find, I don't, you know, and, and there are many, many people in St. George who refuse, and I'm one of them, but, but who refuse to even have dental x-rays. We've had, you know, it's like one of those I gave at the office, okay? Mm -hmm. I don't want to do this anymore. And um, I I was writing down some quotes as Mr. Elf was speaking about how Wilson said this is a miraculous instrument. Uh, that's an oxymoron for me. Mm -hmm. uh, I find that so deeply offensive. And then when they go, we want to let the no world know that we had this. And the only way we could do it by demonstrating to the world is to do it, um, and they treated humans as matter. Mm. Well, I'll tell you another story. They treated humans as if they didn't matter. Let me rephrase that quote right now. Mm -hmm. And um, I think we do not, that we don't grow numb. I find nothing lighthearted about this. Where I live, uh, we don't grow numb, nor do we grow dumb. 
So that is demeaning. We grow dead. And um, the risks that they were willing to take in testing this unknown is incomprehensible. Methinks they were scientists who I would claim were educated beyond their intelligence and their sense of humanity. It was reckless and negligent use. Not, uh, it was in America. They didn't know. It was like, we, we, we need to test this. It was not unlike, I'm an international activist, it's not unlike the U.K. testing it on, on the people of the Aborigines in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, I've interacted with the Japanese, with the Australians, with the Russians. We can start and finish each other's sentences of the effects of these tests. And notice, if you will, if you study this, they chose people that uh, when the paper... My mother had access to these early because she had some deep throat soul that we never knew who it was that was sending her classified information and memos. But we didn't get... We weren't um, at large allowed to be privy to these until Clinton released them. Mm-hmm. And we were... It was phrased in these inter-office memos that we were uh, an underutilized population, mm-hmm. a low-segment-use population. These kinds of, oh, what do they matter? Mm-hmm. Um, that makes you want to pledge allegiance. And um, so uh, I have a healthy dose of skepticism. Um, I, I, I always find it uh, ironic that America says, we don't want anyone else to have these because we're the only ones that know how to handle it. Oh, really? You think so? Mm-hmm. You've killed many, many, many people, and uh, the collateral damage was of no consequence to you. And uh, um, I don't find this subject lighthearted. Mm-hmm. I have lost four people in my community while I've been in this hospital, and I've only been here two and a half weeks. Wow. People that matter... We matter. I don't give a about their matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, you know, this this is so hurtful and painful. Um, we are people that had no reason to look at our own government as the enemy. They were teaching us to build bomb shelters against Russia as they were blowing the hell out of us. And I'm sorry for my mm-hmm. words. Uh, that's but, that's uh, that's Michelle Michelle Thomas joins. We're we're going to continue with her. I want to, to bring back uh, John Else. Uh, is is you know downwinder community is, is very clear, and you just heard that from Michelle Thomas that this is a stark failure by the by the U.S. government that, that, that and and some purposefulness there. Uh, a- absolutely. I mean, I think Michelle is just incredibly eloquent in pointing out that that. You know, there are a lot of people in the, the people in St. George cannot afford to be numbed by this. Uh, the, the people in St. George, the downwinders, are right smack in the path uh, of of the horror that this 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 brought on. Uh, and uh, you know, we 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 depend on them getting the word out to help us become numb, not to remain. Numb, not to forget what these what these weapons and what they're testing um, can do, uh, and uh, you know, people living in uh, <laughs> you know uh, Cleveland and uh, uh, you know Stuttgart are more than happy to to forget about these weapons and forget about 
nuclear issues uh, as they go about their lives. The people in St. George don't have that don't have that luxury and have been uh, you know spent their lives under the very very real and brutal shadow uh, of what that testing wrought on their on the community there. Uh, Michelle Thomas, I, I wonder, uh, there has been some compensation, right? Some been legislation. Is is it enough? What uh, what what do you think um, more can be done? Uh, you would advocate it should be done. Well, um, my mother um, started the charge to get a group of people years ago to fight the government on this. We really, she really wanted us to be named as veterans because, in all aspects, we we were um, Cold War veterans, and fifty thousand dollars. And by the way, it's a very, very sensitive issue. It's for those of us. Well, I've had cancer three times, and I've had mm-hmm. my muscle disease uh, since I was young, and um, uh, they're all. Uh, uh, compensable, but you can only re. I was making that when I became disabled. So, if I hadn't been fortunate enough to work for an institution that had very good insurance that I could keep, I don't know how I could have afforded these years, uh, these lengthy decades of medical malady. I don't know. So, fifty. And then the problem is, we don't. Those of us who get it rarely speak that we do. Because for every one of us that get, and, and let me underscore, 50000 are you kidding me? That wouldn't get you through uh, your surgery, much less any adjuvant uh, treatment. But uh, it certainly doesn't help you uh, take uh, replace your livelihood or your income or your cattle that all died. Um, but I, uh, I, I, I'm always hesitant because for every person I know that did get it, I know hundreds that didn't or more, and so they're very. The government was very selective in what cancers, and especially the ones that were most prevalent, like thyroid, uh, uh, prostate. Prostate is they don't com- compensate that, and but they will compensate breast cancer. They will, you know, um, is. It's uh, it's arbitrary and capricious as far as I'm concerned how they select who may have, um, and it's not like it's going to save your beans. You just, it, it is nothing in light of what you are going to have to need it for. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it's damned if you do and damned if you don't, mm-hmm. if you get the money. Um, but I am in pain for the ones who don't. I just think they ought to write a check to everybody because if you don't have it now, you're going to get it, or your child's going to get it, and now our grandchildren mm-hmm. um, are showing the same exact uh, um, fetal issues that the original, you know, when when we first started this program, many miscarriages, uh, what we call cluster birth, great birth, that's that. Those kinds of things are happening again because, again, it's rewritten our DNA, hmm. and wow. it doesn't. It just as the life of an isotope lives on, some of them. So does that rewrite in your DNA. So I think that the government thinks the quicker these guys all die, we'll be out of. That's it. 
but and they only compensate the first generation. But we're never going to be out of the woods on it, and it didn't stop at county lines. So all of Utah, New Mexico, Colorado, lots of Idaho. I know Idaho and Colorado have bills in to get compensation for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's it's a tragedy of gigantic proportions, and um, I I'm ashamed that our country was so negligent. And and by the way, I don't buy the story of how. Uh, uh, I've read enough to be dangerous, and the one that dropped on Hiroshima, they they were done. They goodbye. Don't don't please. The white flags went up, but everything I've read said they didn't want to return home with one in their plane, so they just dropped the second one because they had it on board. Hmm. Well, that's how happy for them. Um, I I. Uh, I've been to so many conferences where the Japanese and I hug. Uh, we're sorry for each other because we both have suffered so much as a result of this. And, um, you know, I, I just I don't have a lot of uh, terms of endearment, uh, phrases that I can give any accolades whatsoever for America in the use of this. Uh, that's all I can tell you. That's Michelle Thomas. Uh, by the way, the film is The Day After Trinity, and that'll be filmed, uh, that'll be screened uh, tomorrow at the Electric Theater St. George, 7 p.m. The director will be hosting that, and we have him with us as well as uh, Michelle Thomas. His name is uh, John Els. John Els, um, the, the aftermath here, as you've been hearing very clearly from Michelle Thomas, one of the big casualties, uh, you know, precipitated... Uh, uh, it would seem by the government thems- themselves, U.S. government and other governments, uh, used to be that citizens would felt like they could trust the government. And uh, now for good reason, after this and for other reasons, many citizens feel like they can't trust their government. <laughs> that is true. That is true. We grew up in a time when we implicitly trusted the government. We came of age at a time when... Um, you know, the United States government had won World War II, um, and we had no idea what was what was going on out there. We knew that there was testing going on, uh, of course, in Nevada. It was in the news, um, uh, but we had no idea <coughs> uh, the ramifications uh, of that. I mean, the political ramifications, the this constant state of mutual terror was one. But the 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 fall the 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 fallout the plumes of nuclear material from those tests at the Nevada test site. I mean, Michelle's quite right that those spread not home. They spread far beyond the borders of the test site, far beyond the borders uh, of the community of St. George, Utah. I mean, those those plumes uh, circled the globe. Um, I mean, they, they, there was a project in the 1950s when folks began to get concerned about um, a nucleo, uh, a, 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 a strontium-90 um, in, in milk for children. There was a project in the 1950s to collect baby teeth um, in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, to test for um, strontium, and that um, that eventually was one of the things that pushed the test ban treaty uh, of 1963, I believe it was. We did, in fact, finally, uh, because people were outspoken, including people in St. George, including 
uh, the millions of people who marched in ban the bomb marches. We finally did succeed uh, in uh, driving testing underground and stopping nuclear testing uh, above ground, atmospheric testing uh, on the ground in the seas and in the atmosphere. Um, in 1963 in the United States and in the Soviet Union, um, and not it was continued in, in, in other nations. But the, the test site continued underground testing up until 1991, uh, I believe, was the last detonation, nuclear detonation um, there. So, um, and, you know, it is possible to send them at a test site now. I, I, it's not easy, but it's possible um, as a citizen, as a civilian, to go there. It is quite extraordinary. Uh, you feel like you've gone to, um, uh, you know, a planet of the apes. It, 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 there, out there is the, the wreckage from, in essence, a little mini-civilization that the Atomic Energy Commission built out there, houses and bridges and uh, underground parking garages, there's a bank vault sitting out there, there are the remains of all sorts of buildings. Um, and so when those bombs were detonated, of course, it sucked up great clouds of material from the desert floor, and that's in fact what was deposited in Michelle's uh, schoolyard, that highly radioactive uh, dust. Uh, I mean, the image of that material on the swings and on the teeter-totters uh, is, is quite extraordinary. Um, we've made some progress, I think, in government, uh, in rolling back government secrecy. It's certainly not enough. Um, and we'll, we'll, see what, uh, we'll see what the future brings. We just have a couple minutes left. Uh, Michelle Thomas, uh, and for the final question here, I want you to t- tell me just briefly a little bit about your, your mother, Irma, a very courageous woman uh, and an early activist. She she early on wasn't wasn't accepting what the government was was saying, and and uh, against a lot of odds, uh, took took up this this cause. Uh, tell me a little bit about her. Yes, she um, um, was was like one of the first, as far as I know, she was the first activist, and um, she kept a chart in our home of a three block radius, all the square boxes, and I'll, uh, that's in my story, core story, but every time someone would have um, a rare and unusual, uh, they would die suddenly, their hair would fall out suddenly, something that had not been uh, uh, witnessed in our little community prior to the bombs, she'd put an X on their house. Uh, Many of the things were unnamed. There was no diagnosis. They just died. But she was vigilant uh, in her attention to this, and she would... And then when I got my muscle disease, then when I got my muscle disease, um, she put an X on our house, and I was young. Um, I, uh, I've i been very glad that she isn't alive to have seen the number of um, radiation-related disease since and all of my classmates. We were a part of a thyroid study for years and years, and we were sent home with notes. We had regular thyroid tests. They knew they knew that the iodine one thirty one was uh, in the milk, and they didn't. But they and they knew it so profoundly that they knew enough to come and test our thyroids, and in some cases, bust the students with parents' request to the University of Utah to have thyroid nodules or thyroids removed. I mean, it was like invasion of the body snatchers, and my mom was not having it. She said, if you tell me what you want my daughter's thyroid for, well, they weren't going to say that. 
and um, she would put on the original hazmat suit to go out and get the laundry off the clothesline and rewash it. She didn't want her children sleeping on the fallout sheets and towels. But, you know, as much as she did, she wouldn't let us eat food out of the gardens. Uh, ordered the milk from Fillmore, Utah, like that was going to be less tainted than the local milk. She did what she could, and uh, I'll tell you what, she took a beating for it. I I admire um, uh, so much my mother's efforts. Um, I watched her years and years ago, like 1980, on one of the first Ted Koppel shows. He had her as a guest, and she was... She took a charge and did the whole thing. And then when he said to her, the government can never make this up to you. I mean, I can see that you are so hurt and so enraged and so sad. What what could the government do to let you, to make you feel better? And she said, um, I can't think of anything other than to let me dig up all their and kick them. And so um, it cut to a Downey commercial pretty quickly. That was before live feed could be cut. Um, she had a lot of anger, and um, I I try to suppress that, but I mostly I'm in grief. Mostly I'm in depression because of all. It's constant. It's constant. I get phone calls every day from people who go, who want me to calm them down because they've just gotten a diagnosis of cancer or a recurrence, or their grandbaby's born with the their insides on the outside. And it, it, it's just, I, I can't get away from it. Mm-hmm. I, I I hate what they did. And I, I like, I'm proud of the fact that um, a few of us fought so hard to stop divine strike when um, President Bush, Cheney, and Rumsfeld, the Axis of Evil, wanted to start doing underground uh, bunker, bum, bunker busters, Freudian slip. Um, and we went, no, that's not going to happen. And that's one of the only times I've ever seen grassroots efforts beat out, mm. uh, a pronounced effort to start doing things again. And we were like, no way. And I don't, it was, we stopped it only like an hour before it was going to go. Wow. Uh, I don't know whether uh, John Elf is aware of that story of during, um, uh, during Bush's era of wanting mm-hmm. to start doing underground testing again. Yeah. Because those vans, and uh, we know all about those, we'd still see plumes. Yeah. Um, we we so are... Uh... I'm, I, I hope, I wish you the best with your film. I don't know. Uh, I can't second guess how many people from St. George will turn out. They spend a lot of time at viewings and funerals and doing chemotherapy and um, they know the story frontward and backwards, and they are not interchanged by it. Mm-hmm. But I think it is so important for... I meet people here in Provo, where I am right now in the hospital, who have lived here all their life, and they have no idea what downwinders are. Mm-hmm. I teach a death really? and dying class at the U of U. Wow. They have no idea what downwinders are. I will say the international community does, mm-hmm. but not not America. And that's painful. Yeah, that is. It's, it's so important to be educated because, as we know, history repeats itself, mm-hmm. and we are perilously close to it again. 
Mm-hmm. Well, we'll leave it there. We're, we're, we're out of time. Uh, really appreciate you uh, t- telling part of your story here. I'm so sorry for what you're, you and your family, so many are, are going through. Hopefully, the, getting the word out, and as you say, education can, can, uh, can, can help somewhat. Um, Michelle uh, Thomas has uh, joined us. She's a uh, prominent downwinder from the St. George area. Her mother was a very prominent activist. Um, very. And uh, we uh, have had with us as well uh, John Elts. Uh, his film, The Day After Trinity, J. Robert Oppenheimer and the Atomic Bomb, will be screened at the Electric Theater in St. George tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock, and John Elts will be there hosting uh, that. John Elts, uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. And uh, thanks for listening today. Very important uh, topic, and uh, you can hear a little bit more of Michelle Thomas's story from our uh, Utah StoryCorps project. We'll have uh, an episode featuring her coming up on this program on Tuesday of uh, next week. Thanks for listening today to Access Utah. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.